Hello everyone, once again, welcome to A Reason for Hope, A Reason for Hope, in case this is your first time joining us, is a live Bible Q&A show. That's right, you can send in your questions on the Bible through our multiple online platforms and email address, of course, and we will endeavor to answer those questions as we go along live on our broadcast today. That's what we're all about. So we're very glad that you're joining us and providing the content through your questions. So do get those questions in early. Sometimes we run out of time. We often do, actually. So getting those questions <laughs> this in. This is early. the occupational hazard, it is isn't it? It is an occupational yeah. hazard with these guys over yeah. here. Yeah. They just love to get into the word, don't they? Uh, well, my name's Dave Robson. I will be your host today. And like I say, filled in those questions as they come on in with us today, Pastor Sean Richards, who's under the weather, but he is back. This time it's personal. How are you doing? On account of the weather. <laughs> yes. It's been bad here. In, we're in Tucson, Arizona, and the allergies have been quite interesting, haven't they? Yeah, all this rain out of season and then the temperature spiking up to 90 when in the average was 60. Yeah. And apparently everyone's getting sick from it. So yeah, fortunately, fast recovery. So thank you for your prayers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, glad you're here with us as well. Pastor Scott Richards, he's a senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. How are you doing today? Guilty as charged. Yes, yeah. that is you. How dare you? Doing well? Yeah, that, that may be less of a joke as time goes on. <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. Dave. Good. Just good uh, amazing uh, time in the Word today and being able to go out and see some of the people uh, that we get the opportunity to encourage in the body of Christ here at uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship. It's just uh, amazing uh, being able to reach out and uh, be a part of God's love and truth being shared. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. what it's all about. Yeah. Know us by our love for each other. I yeah. read that somewhere, I think. Or allegedly, yeah. Yes, <laughs> right. That's right. Well, thank you guys for making the time today to be here and excited about, like you mentioned, getting in the Word with your questions. So like I mentioned, the reason for hope, it's a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time here in Tucson, Arizona, or wherever it is that you're joining us all around the world. It's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. So a great place for you to go to join us is calvarychristianfellowship.com. Have a click around the website. Uh, don't be a stranger, especially if you're in the Tucson, Arizona area. We have so many groups and Bible studies and services and all kinds of good stuff. So don't be a stranger. If you're looking for somewhere to fellowship, we'd love to have you come visit here at Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, right by Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway. Um, however, for the purposes of today, if you follow that Watch Live tab, that will take you to our live page. Whenever we're live, this is where we stream to. So our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, but also this uh, Reason for Hope show. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show. You'll see a schedule of upcoming events. But when we're live as we are now, you'll see the video. You can sign in with a username and then be part of the broadcast through the chat there. I'll be watching for those questions there. The direct link, ccftucson.online.church. Or again, just follow the, the link from our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. <coughs> Excuse me. We are on Facebook as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or facebook.com slash ccftucson. Don't forget to like and to share. We'd love to reach out not only to yourself, but your friends as well on Facebook. So share us around if you've been blessed by this ministry. And once again, that's a place you can send your question. Put it in the chat box right there. And I will be watching those as well. We try and do first come, first serve basis, but get them in early. Uh, we have an app as well for your mobile device. Look for that uh, red background with a white Calvary Chapel Dove logo, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can download us on your mobile device. Uh, we have a channel on Roku as well and Apple TV. So if you have a, like a Roku stick or a smart TV that has those functions, 
add our channel to your channel list and you can watch us there as well roku apple tv and our mobile app uh, we're on youtube of course a reason for hope is the name of the channel that's a good place to go for archives if you click on the live tab at our reason for hope page on youtube anytime we've been live it's archived there so you can re-watch a show or one that you missed or if there's a question that you want to you know study a bit more that's a great place to go and all of our services here and and actually any event like i say whenever we're live it will be archived there so reason for hope on youtube once again don't forget to like and subscribe and share us around and click the bell that means that you'll be notified when we go live you get a little ding ding and uh, we'll remind you that these handsome men are online and you want to stop everything you're doing to come and be part of a reason for hope so enjoy that on youtube uh, pastor scott here he's on twitter so if you're a twitter kind of person scott r4h and are willing to admit it and are willing to admit <laughs> it you don't have to even admit it but just secretly add scott on twitter scott r4h he posts uh, kind of highlighted questions from the show and also commentary on world events and news events from a prophetic and biblical perspective and things like that so follow along with him that will be very informative and interesting and even sometimes witty and entertaining so scott richards on twitter scott r4h we're on rumble as well sean uh, informed me that we we got a record number of views on one of our videos from last week we're talking about easter and um so if you're on rumble uh, a reason for hope bible q a you can add us on there i haven't personally experienced this platform but if uh, you're getting to know rumble add us there as well it's another place uh, up and coming again a reason for hope bible q a and last but not least our email address questions for hope at gmail.com questions for hope all spelled out at gmail.com that's our email address on the radio you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded so that's the only place that we're not actually live um live so to speak but the other platforms we are live so if you listen to us on the radio use that email address questions for hope at gmail.com we'll endeavor to get to your question at the beginning of our next show and uh, consider joining us on one of those live platforms so you can be with us live when you can well with all that being said, Sean, would you like to pray for us today? We always like to pause and pray and ask for the Lord's Spirit Absolutely. and His guiding and wisdom because we're handling His Word. It's a very serious thing, and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well, not on the basis of our merit, but your mercy and for the edification of your people. Your Word's going to be shared here, and I'm asking that it would be represented accurately, honestly, and from the heart that your people would be edified, exhorted, and comforted as you always set your word out to do. And once again, thank you that we can be a part of this process. Let it be because of your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Amen. 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 Amen to that. Well, anything going on in the world you'd like to well, clue us into today? Uh, you know, uh, on our Twitter feed, we have a uh, feature we call the Odyssey Files. Mm -hmm. And in the Odyssey Files today, under uh, uh, the ancient Chinese curse, yeah, may you live in interesting times. Mm. Uh, boy, we do live in interesting that times, we do. Uh, especially as far as what's going on uh, in Israel uh, right now. Uh, if you are not a uh, regular uh, subscriber uh, and follower of Amir Safadi and his Behold Israel website, I highly recommend uh, that you uh, look him up online and uh, get his updates because, uh, boy, you want to talk about a great source solid biblical source but a great source of uh, what's going on on the ground uh in israel uh amir just does a tremendous job and and in his uh, update today uh he uh, points out 
a, a couple of things that uh, are really fascinating. Uh, he has a, uh, a segment about Iran's four-pronged proxy attacks. Uh, he wrote this, uh, 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 Israel is facing the greatest threat in its history because of the number, sophistication, and strength of the weapons that are currently leveled against it. The recent rocket attacks from Lebanon, Syria, and Gaza, which have been going on all week, uh, have, uh, have uh, been uh, simply feelers to gauge the Israeli reaction. Sadly, that uh, reaction was far weaker than it needed to be. Iran has established and armed its uh, terrorist proxy militias, not only in Lebanon, Syria, and Gaza, but also in Iraq and now even Yemen. Uh, by the way, uh, another uh, very interesting development was uh, it was uh, revealed that uh, the Iranians, uh, in the guise of shipping relief uh, supplies to those who were devastated by the earthquake on the uh, Turkey-Iraq border, uh, used the opportunity to be able to ship in large amounts of uh, weapons, including some sophisticated rocketry. But uh, that's mm -hmm. another uh, point that we could get into if you want to explore it. Uh, Amir continues uh, and says uh, there are today 250,000, that's 250,000 rockets and missiles pointed at Israel. That's right. Look at that number again. Put yourself in the position of having your enemies situated on your borders armed with that kind of arsenal and motivated to destroy you. It would be as if, say, a terrorist group seized the control of the government of Mexico and was uh, setting up uh, missile stations, uh, say, across the border from San Diego or across the border from here in Tucson, uh, across the border from El Paso, and, and so on. You, you get the mm. significance of all of this. Uh, if you do, you'll understand the mood in Israel today. Uh, the thinking behind this plan of Iran's Islamic regime is that the Iron Dome missile defense system will run out of ammunition after the first few hours of defending the country. After that, there is nothing to stop the tens of thousands of remaining missiles from devastating Israel. Then, once the missiles have rained down death, there are rumored to be plans for a massive ground assault. And because it is the uh, militias that are carrying out the attacks, Iran can sit back with plausible deniability. It wasn't us. We're just sitting here waiting for the Mahdi. Uh, yesterday, the IDF's military intelligence directorate warned that war is closer now than peace in the region. Many Israelis are saying that a preemptive strike against Iran is becoming absolutely necessary. This truly is a perilous time for Israel, but I can only scratch the surface in this newsletter format. Uh, again, you can uh, follow Amir uh, online on a number of different platforms. He's on the uh, Telegram platform where he does his uh, updates. Uh, so there's another uh, web platform. I don't think we're on Telegram, <laughs> but, uh, but, but they're, they're, they're out and around. Uh, you know, Amir goes on and talks about a number of terror attacks that have happened in Israel. A, a violent terror attack uh, took place in uh, the Jordan River Valley where a woman and her two children were uh, gunned down Mm -hmm. uh, execution style in cold blood. A uh, terror attack took place in Tel Aviv uh, where an individual uh, drove a car onto the prom promenade. A 36-year-old Italian tourist was killed and seven other people were injured. Mm -hmm. So things are definitely heating up over there. But uh, one of the things I wanted uh, those in our uh, audience to be aware of is uh, there is a significant day coming up on the Muslim calendar. Uh, in Farsi and Arabic, Jerusalem is known as the Holy or Al-Quds. 
when the U.S. Uh, introduced General Qasem Soleimani to the power of a Hellfire missile, the general was the head of the Quds Force of the Islamic Republican Guard Corps. In other words, one of their great goals is to retake Israel from Jewish control and return it to, they believe it belongs to, of the Muslims, more specifically the Iranian Shiite uh, Muslims. Every Ramadan, the last Friday of the month of fasting, is known as Quds Day. Why? It was so declared in 1979 by Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini as an annual day of solidarity against the usurper Israel. Uh, this year, Quds Day falls on April 21st, or a week from today. It is that day, uh, that, or a week from tomorrow, I should say, is that day that those who are involved in the defense of Israel particularly concerned this year. It's certainly a day for the church to be praying for the peace and safety of Israel. Now, there's another, another uh, number of other uh, items. Uh, the United States apparently has sent a nuclear submarine into the Mediterranean in response to some of Iran's heavy-handed tactics going after uh, decidedly U.S. targets and, and so on. So things are heating up there. But uh, prophetically speaking, uh, some people will say, well, you know, is this kind of buildup or say an attack on Quds Day uh, directly prophetically significant? And I believe it's possible that this could be the case. I'm not saying it is, but it is possible. And there's a fascinating psalm uh, that is found in Psalm 83, and it's a psalm of Asaph, but it describes a, a coalition of nations, 11 different people groups, if you will, joining together in a semicircle around Israel to uh, invade and destroy uh, Israel. They, they come up with this uh, conclusion that they have uh, taken crafty counsel against God's people, consulted together against your sheltered ones. They've said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. Uh, the, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Now, the significant thing about this is that it goes into detail about the people groups, uh, tribal groups, that would be a part of this particular attack. And uh, nowhere in Israel, Israel's history has uh, this disparate group of individuals, uh, literally making a semicircle from uh, the border of Lebanon up to Turkey, all the way down uh, past the Gaza Strip, uh, down to Egypt, as a matter of fact. Uh, and no time in history has this particular group joined together them. Assyria is also mentioned in that area. Assyria had uh, quite a bit of territory in the nation we would know today as modern Turkey. Uh, interesting in this psalm, uh, it says they've uh, consulted together with one consent. They form a confederation against you. Uh, but then the psalm goes on to say, deal with them as with Midian and as with Sisera as with Jabin at the Brock Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Make all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Now, it's very interesting that this particular hearkening back uh, to God delivering his people in the past, all of these incidents and personalities mentioned here are individuals that uh, were threats to Israel during the time of the Book of Judges. Mm -hmm. Now, the Book of Judges was not what I would call a high point on Israel's uh, spiritual resume. Mm -hmm. uh, the repeated refrain in the Book of Judges is there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own mm -hmm. eyes. Uh, and uh, the, the 
results of all this uh, were telling. If um, you want to see just how bad it got, uh, read the last couple of chapters of the book of Judges, the whole incident with the Benjamites and you know, the really bloody or horrific uh, civil war uh, that took place between uh, even tribal members of, of the people of Israel. They not only were threatened from the outside, enemies like the Midianites and the Philistines, they were actually threatened by each other with extermination. But the one thing that you discover in all of this is that Israel, in essence, during this time, would go through a time where their blessings from God would become more important to them than the blesser. And having uh, the, the blessings of God would soon lull them into a sense of complacency that didn't stay complacent very long. It moved into corruption and out-and-out -out idolatry. Israel turning its back on God, the one who was their shepherd and protector, God would respond by saying, all right, you want to play uh, with the big boys, the other nations out there, you don't want my protection, have at it. And inevitably, there would come an oppressor that would make life absolutely stinking miserable for the people of Israel. Well, after being under that kind of oppression for a time period, Israel would cry out to God, God would send a deliverer, and peace would be restored to Israel for a short amount of time, then the cycle would repeat. Uh, the reason I point this out is uh, there are those who will say, well, you know, is Israel really, you know, God's chosen people anymore? The vast uh, majority of uh, Israelis identify as atheists. They've had huge gay pride parades mm -hmm. in Tel Aviv and, and so on. Uh, you know, are, do they really belong to the Lord anymore? Well, you might as well have asked that during the time of the book of Judges. Uh, even though we're faithless, God remains faithful to his promises. But significantly, this passage in Psalm 83 talks about a supernatural intervention of God on behalf of Israel that would be like the time of the Judges. And I believe that the inference there is it's going to happen not because Israel's hitting on all cylinders spiritually, far from it, but God is faithful and he's going to take care of his people. In a very interesting way, it says, Oh God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. As the fire burns the wood and the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish, that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. In other words, God is going to supernaturally intervene in this uh, coalition of nations coming together to invade Israel. And this is a very different coalition of nations, by the way, than the coalition of nations we see described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Two separate incidents going on here. But a very similar thing that God does and that he intervenes and, in a sense, almost uses weather weapons, it sounds like, to dismay these individuals who are going to try to attack Israel. So if the plan, the plot, is to overwhelm the uh, Iron Dome defense systems with this rain of missiles, soften up Israeli targets because uh, Israel is not what I would call in a great place as far as national solidarity is concerned, a huge uh, protest continuing on, some believe, orchestrated and funded by the Mossad itself to bring down the Netanyahu government. Apparently they don't like Benjamin Netanyahu very much. 
the greatest endorsement as I can name. The, uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is Israel is a divided nation, a distracted nation, and its enemies have not taken their eye off the prize. They want to exterminate Israel. They want to drive them into the sea. Uh, you know, as the uh, psalm puts it so eloquently, come, let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Well, it sounds like the, the teleprompter script uh, from uh, death to the great Satan and little Satan day that goes on every day in uh, every Friday in Tehran. Uh, so uh, will we see this coming up on Kud's day? Well, some of the pieces of the puzzle certainly are coming together when we see that uh, rocket emplacements and Iranian proxies are operating in a semicircle all the way down to Yemen and all the way up into Lebanon and Syria and Iraq, uh, we do see this kind of semi-circle of potential uh, ground invasion happening against Israel. So a uh, really important thing for us to keep our eyes on, really important thing to pray uh, about. Will this happen? Will this be the fulfillment of Psalm 83? Some will say, well, doesn't this sound like something that's going to go on during the tribulation period? Nothing about this indicates that it has to happen during the tribulation period. It could happen at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting, another prophecy that we find in Isaiah 17 uh, about the destruction of Damascus. Uh, this also will uh, is an event that could happen at any time. It doesn't have to happen during the tribulation period. And in both of these sets of circumstances, Israel ends up being decidedly weakened as a result of these kind of attacks. They aren't destroyed. They're delivered, but weakened, uh, particularly in the Damascus set of circumstances. So uh, be praying. It just seems like, once again, at the very least, we could say, and I can say this without uh, fear of any kind of contradiction, uh, we're dealing with a major birth pain coming together here. Mm. As far as the saber-rattling goes in the Middle East, Jesus said that uh, wars and rumors of wars, uh, among other things, uh, would be like uh, the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of birth pains. And birth pains uh, increase in frequency and intensity as the big day draws near. Yeah. Uh, there's a buildup, and then there's a lull, and then, there, then it comes back again even stronger. I think that may be what we are seeing here. So, uh, you know, keep a bookmark in Psalm 83. Uh, keep a bookmark in Psalm 121, that he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. We know that. Yeah. Uh, he is their keeper. Uh, but also uh, keep uh, Israel in prayer. Uh, remember, uh, God said that he would bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. Right. Certainly want to be on the blessing side of all that, so mm-hmm. let's uh, keep Israel in prayer. One other interesting uh, thing that I would just uh, point out uh, for our readership, uh, we often point you to All Israel News, uh, our friend Joel Rosenberg's excellent uh, website. Uh, he has an interesting uh, headline article uh, saying, tonight on the Rosenberg Report, an Iranian Shia convert explains Islamic end times theology driving Tehran to attempt to annihilate Israel. And Marisa Amirzada uh, is going to be Joel's guest. <laughs> She's a fascinating person in that uh, she is a convert from Shia Islam to Christianity. How she converted? Well, she was one of those people that we hear about who had dreams and visions of Jesus explaining the true gospel to her. Wow. So blown away was she by all of this, and a number, another friend of her had a similar experience, that they uh, were in the process of distributing 20,000 New Testaments in Tehran when she was arrested and uh, sentenced to the 
horrific Evan prison mm. in Tehran. Maybe the worst prison in the world. If mm. you've ever seen Locked Up Abroad, uh, people who are locked up abroad, uh, you know, uh, we think those things are awful. The Evan prison puts them to shame. Mm. Um, she continued uh, to boldly share her faith in the Evan prison, mm. even getting a Bible study and worship uh, gatherings together where they would be singing praises to God in the midst of all this. So I would highly uh, encourage you uh, tonight on uh, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, uh, the Rosenberg Report, uh, Joel is going to be uh, interviewing this uh, amazing woman, talking about uh, how we need to understand what uh, the Mad Mullahs in Tehran believe is their end times theology. And if you've got any questions about that, we have here uh, what I would consider our go-to guy on things Islamic and uh, Islamic uh, theology. Sean, be happy to answer some of your questions as well. Yeah, great. Thank you for sharing that. Well, of course for prayer indeed. Um, well, I know we had a question um, that we wanted to get to about soul sleep. Sean, you and I were talking about that. We had a question yep. about soul sleep and what that is. So. Yeah, we had a video some time back that went into this topic in great detail and we had an individual email us saying that they couldn't find it because we no longer have access to that channel. So basically to just go over what the doctrine of soul sleep is, uh, is it biblical, is it a proper handling of scripture, and then of course what are the arguments for and against it since obviously no one would hold it if it had nothing for it. Now obviously when people put forward the idea of soul sleep, this is the pro position. This is the argument in favor of it. It's largely based on putting my hand out on the table here, uh, making the same mistake that the disciples did in John chapter 11 when they were informed that Lazarus had fallen asleep. And in the immediate next verse, Jesus clarifies, no, he's dead. It's a linguistic use of a term that's in Greek and Hebrew as well as English called a euphemism to yep. lessen the severity of a hostile or a loaded term in order to communicate a finer point. We see, of course, that in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, a topic about the resurrection and final judgment, that throughout the chapter they have no problem, Paul speaking, of course, being they, about death, the body dies when right. we die in Christ. And then for some reason in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50 and onward, it, verse 51 specifically, but it uses this euphemism, although those who argue for soul sleep say it's a literal doctrine, those who sleep in Jesus. Now, what's that referring to? Well, the doctrine is largely this, for the benefit of those listening, that the idea of us having an immediate presence and conscious relationship with God upon physical death is not scriptural. This is not my belief. This is the doctrine's teaching. We're just explaining it to you right now. That yeah. the soul sleeps, literally, in a state of unconscious and unawareness until the point where we are raised from the dead for final judgment, then not only our physical bodies, but our spiritual and physical consciousness are both returned to us, so that for all intents and purposes, when the inevitable objections come up, well, didn't Jesus say to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise? He was speaking in terms, not my opinion, once again, the view of the soul sleep proponent, they would perceive it as an instantaneous, just like when you fall asleep, it's just, oh my gosh, how long has it been? Yeah. So the idea is, and the argument is, that the soul's physical death 
is used in sleep, not euphemistically, but literally, that we're put through an indeterminate period of time, that the timeline, so to speak, of heaven and earth are synonymous, and that because of the fact that we are going through a set period of time here on this earth, there will also be a set period in time in heaven before we are with the Lord, the definition of heaven, which, to their credit, we would also agree on. The key point of emphasis is that there is no room for linguistic trickery here. There is no room for anything other than a literal handling of the text. When the Bible says sleep, it means sleep and how we understand it physically and apply it spiritually. Now, when it comes to this issue and when we see, for example, it being used euphemistically. By John chapter 11, they would emphasize the context. They would say, well, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That's a perfectly valuable and valid argument that we would use here on the broadcast in interpreting certain passages. But on top of the plain sense making sense, we also want to examine context. When the term is used, obviously you can have plain explanations. When Jesus says, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I'm going to go and wake him up, the disciples say, oh, well, he's sleeping. He must be getting better. Jesus immediately clarifies, Lazarus is dead. The soul sleep advocate would acknowledge that as a euphemism. Right. But when 1 Corinthians 15, when 2 Corinthians 5, when 1 Thessalonians 4, and many other passages use this term sleep, ubiquitously, just as if we know what it means. What gives us reason to doubt that this isn't using the term sleep in the way that we do? After all, the Greek word, and I'll grab it here, uh, the word, one moment here, (laughs) uh, koimau, can mean to physically sleep. Right. It's used in and throughout the New Testament in reference, for example, when the guards were physically asleep, when they claimed that the disciples stole the body in Matthew 28. Now, that's literal sleep. The guards weren't killed and then resurrected. So, what gives us the consistent handling of this passage? What are our challenges to the soul sleep doctrine? And what do we believe is the scripture's position and passages to support it, of course, on the consciousness of us after we leave this life? Yeah, I I think it's a really good question because, as you mentioned, Sean, it really kind of gets into a really important uh, insight into um, how to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, You know, the Bible is, in a sense, a self-interpreting book. And by that, what we mean is, is if I make an assertion that the Bible teaches a certain thing, Mm -hmm. okay, I need to not only make a broad strokes declaration the Bible teaches, okay, the Bible teaches soul sleep. I need to be able to not just share scriptures that might point to that point of view, but I need to teach the whole counsel of God on a particular uh, set of circumstances so that we can, in a sense, double check our work, mm-hmm. if you will. And you know, one could say, well, you know, again, you know, and Stephen was stoned. Uh, having uh, breathed his last, he fell asleep. So clearly, Stephen lost consciousness at that time, and he's waiting for Jesus to wake him up. Okay, interesting theory, but there's a couple of big problems with all of this. One of them you pointed out, Sean, uh, the thief on the cross. Uh, Jesus did not say to him, uh, truly I say to you, uh, you're going to die, 
and go to sleep, but it's going to just seem like uh, nothing to you, like uh, one of those uh, dreamless nights that you go through and you just wake up. But, but don't worry, I'll wake you up. No, he said, truly I say to you, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So you're That's emphasizing a plain interpretation of that statement, calling for consistency when they emphasize that with the sleep euphemism. Yeah, and, and again, we can go into more detail. In the book of Luke chapter 16, the account of the rich man and Lazarus, we see Jesus, in a sense, parting the curtain of reality and allowing us to be able to see what happens to people who die when they go to the other side. Well, in this set of circumstances, we see a rich man who didn't know God waking up in a place called torment. We see a guy named Lazarus being carried by the angels to a place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Neither of them went to sleep at any point in this process. They were completely conscious of their destination, either for good or for ill. The other uh, kicker for me is in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, talking about how God has prepared us for this very thing, has given us the spirit as a guarantee, he's going to give us this brand new body. He says, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, notice it doesn't say we are well pleased to be absent from the body because, oh, thank goodness, I'll finally get some sleep. No, it says to be absent from the body is to be present from the present with the Lord. Hopefully, not so, from. So, uh, you know, the the you know again Hebrews uh, chapter nine uh, also tells us that it is given to man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Uh, so it doesn't say after it's given a man wants to die, then an indeterminate amount of sleeping time, and then a resurrection either for good or for ill. Uh, it's very direct as far as this is concerned. So I would say the burden of proof, you know, and it's not, say, something I uh, divide fellowship over. Uh, I want to call somebody a uh, heretic if they believed in soul sleep. But clearly, if we take a look at something, as you mentioned, Sean, that is used euphemistically uh, consistently in Scripture, uh, that really speaks about the body that returns to the dust from which it is made. The body will be resurrected at a future time, but the consciousness of a person never goes through a, uh, well, you know, you're out of it for thousands of years, mm. and then God wakes you up again. The mm. assumption, is it the body, is it the soul, or both? Yeah. Does our body lose activity and consciousness? Absolutely. Yeah, and that, if you've ever been to an open casket funeral, inevitably someone says, oh, it looks like they're sleeping. Which again isn't our argument, yeah. it's just illustrating the yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. So, just to recap, when it comes to the strengths and weaknesses on both sides, the call for consistency on the part of the soul sleeper is to make the point that is there a consistent timeline or a separate timeline in heaven and on earth? Is there a unified consciousness of the body and soul, or can the soul be conscious, though absent from the body? Another example would be in 2 Corinthians 12, yeah. where Paul was brought to paradise despite his body being inert. The uh, other arguments that need to be made is, again, in your handling of the text, are you eisegeting the text? Are you reading into something that's not there? Not an argument from absence or silence. A conclusion based on more information, right. not less. Don't misunderstand that. When we're arguing for the comfort of those who are mourning, see 1 Thessalonians 4, we're doing so in literally stating they are with the Lord. 
see plain handlings of passages like Hebrews chapter 9 and many and uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and many others. When the person counters for soul sleep and states, so why then is 1 Corinthians 15 is their best example, the term death used so straightforwardly throughout the chapter, yet supposedly euphemistically when we get to verse 50 in reference to the resurrection. And there lies in the argument. Is verse 51 using this euphemism with the whole chapter building up to that point so it's clear we're talking about death, not physically sleeping? Or, as we would both agree, is it speaking of the body's conscious state? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed noting that physical consciousness or lack thereof. So here's the dividing line. Can the body and soul de-exist, so to speak? Can our soul be conscious with the Lord and our body still be inert on this earth? Or does the resurrection have to have both happening at the same time? Can time pass here on this earth, whereas the Lord is going on his own timetable, so to speak? Or do they both have to be happening at the same time? These assumptions and more are things to keep in mind and understand our position is considering the fact there is more merit, there's more plain passages to interpret. No, there are passages that need to be interpreted, but more plain statements on our side than the opposing side, which is why we don't hold that view. But for those who do, understand those are the challenges. Does the timeline of heaven have to be linear? Does the timeline of this earth have to coincide with that timeline? And then, of course, does our body, and can you support this scripturally, exist apart from the soul or vice versa? Do we, in fact, exist with a body, not as a body? And that's an argument made by others like C.S. Lewis. But the point being made is this. Can we meet on the common ground of scripture? Can we claim, okay, I grant you that requires me to read something into the text rather than out of it, but at the end of it, note, where does it both lead us? The person of Jesus Christ, the resurrection by which his authority will raise the dead from their tombs. That's the authority we both share, and hopefully we can meet on when discussing this matter. Yeah, but uh, the, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, and verse uh, 22, he says, But you've come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So very clearly the writer of Hebrews there saw individuals uh, already made perfect uh, there before the throne of God. Right, right. Great. Thanks for that. Soul sleep. And that concept, thank you. Uh, we have a question here from Mac D. Can America be compared to Babylon? In that they're both countries, in that they both have resources and populations. I or think. I think. Uh, I think the fair <laughs> question letters is, uh, the name. you know, in Revelation 18, uh, the idea of Babylon the Great. Yeah. Is Babylon the Great in Revelation 18 a picture of the United States or something else? Yeah, and the argument, of course, is people have concerns about the fact that the end times mystery Babylon is described as making the majority of her wealth through trade and through boats and seas, uh, the, the collapse of its economy, so to speak, its total destruction by God, and we believe that's direct, by the way, uh, will result in all nations mourning, and that was 
pretty much the consensus interpretation between the years of maybe 1860 and nine and 2001 when the united states was essentially the straw that stirred the drink economically on the world scene that would have made sense if god destroyed the united states through <laughs> what we read in zechariah Everyone's money goes, but as we're seeing today, uh, more and more nations are getting off of the dollar, some onto the yen, some onto their own currency, and the point being made is that much like Great Britain was comparable to Babylon at one point, much like France was comparable to Great Babylon at one point, much like Babylon was comparable to Mystery Babylon at one point, they've all come and gone. When we're talking about the last days kingdom and empire, we're not given a measure of geography, we're not given borders, we're only told of her influence and her rebellion against God. Now, that's true of every nation, and whether it's describing the whole world system or not, I would argue that it, yes, would in fact be a specific city through which the Antichrist will orchestrate things. I think the text is fairly plain about that if you compare it to the language used in, for example, Ezekiel describing the same thing of literal Babylon, but I digress. When we're talking about Revelation 17 and 18 and its ultimate destruction before God, that's the first time that this mystery Babylon is mentioned in Scripture. Oh wait, I lied. Revelation 16 is the first time that mystery Babylon is mentioned in Scripture, and the next two chapters go on to explain what's the significance of this, and then goes on to use the same language of the destruction of literal Babylon in the Old Testament. So is that a literal nation? Could be. Is it a literal city? I would say definitely. A nation has many cities in it, so it's at least one city. could be many. But the emphasis of the Antichrist kingdom and this world system along with it ultimately coming to an end is the point and emphasis of that, and heaven rejoices over it in Revelation 19. Now, when we—and this is where my smarminess kind of came out—start to play newspaper eschatology and say, oh, this fits— this aspect of the majority of its trade being through boats and through the sea, the merchants and those who became wealthy by her. Oh, the pearls, that's a reference to Gentile nations. You know, the majority of the United States is Gentile. But when you're talking about those little nitpicky details, uh, I believe um, a book titled The Harbinger tried to bank on this in claiming that Isaiah prophesied the events of 9-11, total hogwash. So we need to make sure we're not reading into the Scripture things that are happening in our day and age. We're looking at Scripture and saying, okay, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes in various places, pestilences, these are the beginning of sorrows, nations turning against one another, global conflicts, people hating the gospel and turning on his people more and more. We're seeing that in the United States. We're also seeing that in Argentina. We're also seeing that in Belarus. What's your point? We need to understand that that is different than someone saying, well, this is the fulfillment of it. Yeah, that was the view. But there were also other views that came and went with the times. Sure. What do we know about Scripture? This is the same Greek that they were reading in the first century and what we're still reading today. What are we told? that it's going to be destroyed. That's all we need to know until further information is given. Unfortunately, uh, Mac, with total confidence in your relationship with the Lord, we won't know (laughs) until it no longer matters. Yeah, and Mac, the only other things I'd add is that uh, as far as uh, taking the point of view that this is some, uh, you know, symbolic view of another nation, Mm -hmm. I'm old enough to remember uh, where uh, people would pack out 
uh, prophecy conferences where they were sure that this was Japan because Japan was an island nation. Japan was uh, really uh, taking names as far as uh, the economic uh, world was concerned back in the uh, early 80s and, and so on. Nobody thought uh, Japan's day would ever come to an end because uh, they could devote themselves entirely to commerce and uh, we had to do things like defend Japan because nobody wanted them to rearm again after World War II. Yeah. So, you know, you would hear all these arguments and people say, well, Japan is kind of like this and, they, you know, the, the merchant ships and, and so on. Well, uh, you know, once again, I think it, we're safer when we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And uh, in Jeremiah chapter 50, a couple things uh, that we need to understand there. In Jeremiah chapter 50, we are told that literal Babylon, and no scholar believes that uh, this is euphemistic, uh, this is symbolic, this is God describing Babylon, the same Babylon that conquered Israel, the same one that Nebuchadnezzar made great, and so on. Uh, it has an interesting destiny. It says, uh, for instance, in uh, verse 40, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one will reside there, nor will a son of man dwell in it. Okay, uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be so complete, it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the destruction, destruction of, Babylon of, like of Babylon that we see described in Revelation 18 fits that description. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and so really important for us to understand that. And, and like you, know, you mentioned, uh, Sean, uh, you know, we can start speculating and getting involved with, oh, this is happening in the news, therefore this must be, you know, kind of reading into the scripture. And you sell a lot of books that way and pack out some auditoriums. But it's just been amazing how wrong all these things have been. You know, when God said in Jeremiah chapter 50, uh, yeah, Babylon's going down. It's going to go down like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's never happened. Hmm. I mean, to this day, there are people that live in Babylon. Um, you know, the UN has uh, devoted quite a bit of uh, time, effort, and energy, along with uh, the former regime of Saddam Hussein, to rebuilding Babylon and making it a, a center of uh, Middle Eastern uh, culture and, uh, and a place where uh, diplomats can have meetings and so forth. Right. So it does appear that the actual fulfillment of Jeremiah 50 is yet in the future. Hmm. Tying that together, what we see happening in uh, Revelation 18 seems to make the most sense without having to make a leap into, well, this is just symbolic, and you know how crummy the United States is these days, so, you know, I'm sure they're Babylon, so. All right, all right. Well, thanks, Mike, for that question. Hope that, that helps you out. Thank you for that. Appreciate you being part of the show. A uh, question from John on the road to Emmaus. One disciple was uh, Cleopas, am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, good, wow. Uh, the other is not named. Some believe it was Cleopas's wife. Uh, Mary, could this be true? Well, for those of you who want to know how we know that was her name, uh, John 19.25 mentions her as one of those who accompanies Jesus and the Dr. Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke where the Road to Emmaus account is mentioned. I had no problem mentioning women among the company of the disciples, whereas the other Gospels kind of mention as a technicality right. where they have to make a specific distinction culturally between the women and the men. The reason why people might come to that conclusion is not because of anything told into the text. Strike one. <laughs> yeah. The second reason people, and notice the reason is a strike, the second reason is when people would read into this passage, they would say, well, there's no real identifying of them, but they're in the company 
of Cleopas, so could it be her? No actual information is given in it, strike two. The third reason an argument people might give for this is because there's no gendered language or distinction, that because Luke doesn't really have to mention this person or individual, maybe it was a cultural accommodation, supposedly it was just the fact that everyone knew who was accompanying with them, no specific mention is made of whether there were two men or not, all arguments from absence of information, not Silence, actually yeah. including. Yeah. Now, do we know that Cleopas had a wife? Yes, again, John 19.25. Do we know that there were two people, human beings, <laughs> living people, in Certainly a company do. with Jesus mm. on the road to Emmaus? Absolutely. Do we know whether one of them was a woman or not? No. Do we know the name of the woman or man that was with him? No, we don't. Do we know the name of at least two of the men who were on the road to Emmaus? Jesus of Nazareth and Cleopas. That's what we're told, so I'd stick to that. Yeah. Now, as far as things in the text that might go against this, uh, I think that uh, verse 23 and 24 might throw a monkey wrench into it and make the reading into it even more of a stretch, because if there was an opportunity for Jesus or uh, Mary, uh, Cleopas' wife, to kind of voice up something more direct, we saw the Lord risen. But in the text it says, and let me read it, when they did not find his body, they came, saying that they yep. had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went, not were, went, went. to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. If you look up John 19.25, Mary, Cleopas' wife, was among the people who saw the Lord risen first yeah. before any of the disciples, before right. this. Right. If she was the one with him, you have to make a super stretch that she had been talked down by her husband, that she had been cowled into silence like a Middle Eastern woman or something. Shows you have no idea what Middle Eastern women can be like, but the point being made is that. You have to read so much into this that it just strains the whole credibility of the text. Where if on the other hand you just listen to the one guest of honor who actually was named in that passage, Jesus! Then you're taking away what was meant by Luke recording it in the first place. Not mystery about the identity of Cleopas' accompaniment, but the mystery revealed of the one who was accompanying Cleopas and whoever else it was. Yeah, I think the us versus they in that passage is pretty convincing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mary would have gone, yeah, you know, I, I, I saw, saw the him. Lord, you know, during that. And so, yeah. Well, but maybe, her, you know, since their eyes are restrained, from seeing him, maybe she didn't recognize him. That still doesn't get you over that hump of the us versus they, uh, referring yeah. to the women. Uh, you know, it, it would be really, I think, a very difficult stretch for her to say, well, yeah, I was part of the women there, but I just think I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. Yeah. You know, right. what do you mean, they? You know, I was part of that, you know? So uh, I, I just think the, uh, the natural sense is that um, it's an unnamed other disciple. We don't know who it was. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll find out when we get to heaven, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we could say that to all these questions. Yeah. 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 Save a lot of time. Yeah, uh, that's not yeah. fun. Welcome to, we'll find out when we get to heaven. <laughs> that's right. We're changing the name Join of the program. Join us tomorrow. Yeah. That's the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that applies to everything. Well, thanks, John, for that question. I know you, <laughs> you hung out for a couple of days with that question, so thanks for hanging in there. Glad we got to it today. Thank you for it. Uh, question from Renee. Did the fruit that Adam and Eve eat literally have power or was uh, God testing their obedience spiritually and um, 
to see their sin. So was there a power to the apple or was it just a disobedience kind of thing? We don't know if well, it was an all, apple. We don't know it's not a, it was an apple. That's true. Um, <laughs> there was power. <laughs> well, that's your question. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is what you're referring to, is joined with a tree that certainly did have power, and that was the tree of life. Yeah, independent yeah. of, say, someone's spiritual condition. Right, and the reason f we conclude that is because yeah. at the end of Genesis chapter 3, the literal cherub, an exalted one, guards the entrance to the tree of life specifically so that Adam and Eve wouldn't eat of it lest they would live forever in their fallen state. Right. So there was a power to this tree that will be restored to us in Revelation chapter 22. But what's interesting about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to say that it had power. You're catching the point of emphasis, Renee, that the sin wasn't the tree. It was the sin that separated them from God relationally. It wasn't as if there was like this supernatural entity that leached into their DNA and passed the sin gene to us all. I think that's a little much. But if we're going to ask the fact that it accompanied the tree of life, the tree of life definitely had power. Did the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represent something and the impact of its representation, our sinful nature being acted out and then carried over legally? I think there's merit to that. To say that there's a physical component to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God gave it the capacity to curse mankind, I wouldn't say God's incapable of that, but it's not exactly the point of the text. Yeah. And I couldn't argue that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly agree. You know, the tree of life, as it's described in Revelation chapter 22, does have life-giving properties. It says that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, mm -hmm. uh, even in the eternal state. They're going to be therapeutic. That's the word that is used there. They're going to be life-giving. So uh, in that case, yes. In uh, the case of the uh, fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, uh, remember, they took it and their eyes were opened in the sense that they knew evil and they knew they'd committed it. So there you go. Right. Yep. And right. God came to them for restoration, and they tried to hide themselves. So. Right. Right. Well, great question, Renee. Thank you for that. We're coming up on the end of the show, but maybe we can get to at least another question. A question from Eli here. How does the Bible explain the Neanderthal? Uh, the Neanderthal yeah. uh, were individuals that lived uh, largely in northern Europe. Uh, because they lived in northern Europe, uh, they would uh, tend to have certain features uh, that would be emphasized in the regular human genome handed down from Adam and Eve. Uh, it, very interesting, many uh, Neanderthal skeletons uh, show sign of having rickets, which is a vitamin D deficiency. In other words, if you live in a northern climate and are not able to supplement your diet with vitamin D-rich foods, mm. you come down with this genetic abnormality, which does create some of the bone uh, distortions that we see here. Mm. The bottom line, though, is Neanderthals uh, were artists. If you've ever seen the picture of the Lascaux Caves, uh, the cave drawings that were done by Neanderthals, we have skeletons associated with it, uh, amazing artistry. Uh, there uh, have been uh, discoveries of uh, very sophisticated tools that Neanderthals made. Uh, one tool in particular, a spear that was uh, uh, attached to a piece of wood by a particular type of glue that the Neanderthals made. Uh, the glue was still functioning, which makes it superior in its strength to the glue that we have 
put together in our day and age. So, you know, the idea that these were brute beast, knuckle draggers, uh, semi-animalistic uh, individuals, yeah. no, it doesn't hold up. The other thing is this, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens interbred. That's uh, terrible. And if you, go, if you go to 23andMe, get ready because they're probably going to mention to you that you have some Neanderthal <laughs> DNA in you. So, you know, uh, it, it kind of begs the question. You know, the evolutionary timeline has the Neanderthals uh, you know, kind of way back and maybe right. coinciding with Homo sapiens, but being an inferior breed, more animalistic uh, by their culture, by their inventions, by their ability to interbreed. All they were were a, difficult, a different kind of human being, and in many cases, ones that suffered from rickets. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, extremely, and I'll just say the word, racist assumption to deem Neanderthals subhuman. But the argument that would make Neanderthals in conflict with the Bible is the assumption that there were subhumans on the way, the transitional form for human beings. But every time they try and find a transitional form, human or otherwise, it's one of three things. It's either an artist rendition of a part of a skeleton that they later found out was fraudulent or just mistaken. It is a lie. <laughs> they just came to the conclusion without looking at the data. Or it was an assumption made before the data and then the pesky facts just had to be selectively edited afterwards. Another perfect example of this was the discovery of T-Rex marrow, and instead of realizing that uh, those bones were probably less than a thousand years old, they realized... Ten thousand at the outside, yeah. yeah. Then, yeah. Uh, oh, well, we can't change our dates, let's just change the facts, and that happens all the time. How does the Neanderthals... Uh, the Bible explain Neanderthals? The Bible continues to explain the facts. People have to explain the Neanderthals, and they continue to sit and glorify God because they were made in His image, too. Yeah. Amen to that. Thank you, guys. That's it for today. Reason for Hope. We'll see you back same time, same place tomorrow. God bless Have you, guys. Have a great rest of your day. God bless you. Yes. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.